Well, here's my first question. Do you think it's a little dangerous handing out guns in a bank? Did you know that in Canada, people don't lock their doors? Hi, welcome to Michael and Us, a depressing, nostalgic journey through the cinematic oeuvre of Michael Moore. I'm Will Sloan, and with me as always... Luke Savage. So it's a big day. We're recording this on uh, June 7th, I believe it is, Mm -hmm. which is the day that Bernie Sanders finally dies. (laughs) It's the day of the California primary, and also uh, primaries and caucuses in six other states, uh... Montana, the Dakotas, New Mexico, New Jersey. Yeah, so let's just it. finally That's put this it. madness <laughs> to rest. Let's. <laughs> so, I mean, as anyone who's listening probably knows, last night the Associated Press called the election for uh, Hillary Clinton on the basis of an unofficial survey of superdelegates whose names they won't release. So we're not sure what effect uh, this is going to have on the primary election, if it's going to depress turnout or uh, or have the opposite effect. I suppose we'll know soon. You'll know by the time you hear this. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you'll know. Uh, you'll know uh, that the choice for Americans in November is going to be between uh, fascism and oligarchy, and uh, it's going to be an exciting prospect. And me, honestly, I mean, you're kind of a hardcore Bernie bro, Bernie supporter. You're <laughs> we've the, established. Yeah, that. you're the guy with the egg avatar who harasses people on Twitter and says, "No, I'm an intersectional feminist." <laughs> That's you. That's me, me in a nutshell. Me, yeah. you know, like, as I said before, I'm the guy at the barber shop with, with opinions, but I, I'm also, I pride myself in kind of blowing wherever the wind blows, so I'm definitely... <laughs> so you're going to be with Trump. I'm definitely with, with her for now. <laughs> for now I'm with her, but uh, yeah, when Trump wins, and he will, <laughs> I think he will. So um, I guess like a bit of housekeeping before we get on with our movie today, which is Roger and Me, Michael Moore's first and uh, I think best, best. movie. Yeah, we, uh, I guess we agree there. So I guess, first of all, thanks for everybody who listened to the first episode. Um, eh. <laughs> Will's not grateful, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I am. Um, and uh, thanks to people who sent us nice tweets and, and messages about it. I think this one's going to be interesting because unlike uh, Slacker Uprising, we actually enjoyed this film. Yes. So I think, I think you know, going forward, there's, you know, not all of them are going to be quite as snarky as the first one. Although, don't you fret, because we're going to get lots of snark in going forward. There was one other thing that I want to bring up, which is that last time, Will, in his best NPR voice, was uh, nice enough to ask me who I am, uh, but we didn't really establish who you are. So tell us about yourself. What are your credentials, as you asked me? Oh, my credentials? I mean, I'm kind of a... I'm kind of a... uh personnel no i i have <laughs> you, you've reviewed films for echo weekly i uh, yes i was the film critic <laughs> for echo weekly and pulse niagara mm-hmm. uh, after that i uh took a a bit of a lateral move i, I wrote some stuff for npr and i've written for hazlitt <laughs> i've written for toronto life other other things that I can't remember right other now. Other things that are not prestigious and which no one's ever heard of, of course. And um, and you went to I, Columbia. I you, went. To, I did yeah. go to Columbia. I have a journalism degree from Columbia. That and uh, two bucks will get you a coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> and uh, and you were a reporter at uh, the Woolwich Observer. Yes, as well. I covered the waterfront. I I did sports, arts. Did news. you cover the Wellesley Apple, Apple Butter Festival? 
the other reporter, Eleanor, oh. covered that that weekend. But Why are we I, even doing this? But <laughs> I did I did cover it. No, people, I mean, if you're interested in Michael Moore, you're interested in the real America. And, by, and there's nothing more real America than the Wellesley, Ontario yeah. Apple Butter Festival. I did cover the Elmira uh, Syrup <laughs> Festival two years in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, uh, well, and now I uh, also host another podcast called The Important Cinema Club mm. with my pal Justin DeClue. It's really good. You guys should check it out. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it, like it's better than this one i would say so check it out <laughs> so let's uh, let's get into it um our film today as i said is roger and me uh the first film in the michael moore oeuvre and um will tell us about this film god where do you even begin hi i'm michael moore in my hometown of flint michigan general motors closed the factories and put thirty thousand people out of work to raise their spirits i made this movie and went off to find GM Chairman Roger Smith to get some answers. Boy, was he hard to get to. We're going to have to ask you to leave the club. Do you want me to call Roger Smith? That's off limits. Call General Motors. I really don't know. I'm a I don't think we've met. Do you have an appointment? Mr. Smith is not in. I don't understand. Would you mind leaving? So while looking for Roger, I got to know some of the people in my hometown a bit better. Well, I mean, it's the movie that put Michael Moore on the map, the movie that established in some ways established the template of what a Michael Moore movie is. He's the uh, the guy in the ball cap and the, the jeans who goes out and, you know, ambushes people. Mm-hmm. It's also, it feel, feels in some way like his most personal movie because it's about the decline of Flint, Michigan after General Motors closed their auto plant there. Yeah. Flint, he's, he's, uh, he's from or he's sort of from. He's right? from Davis, Michigan, which is a suburb of Flint, okay. which is something that his detractors make a big deal out of. Right. Yeah, it's like saying you're from Toronto, but you're from Etobicoke. Right. You know. Yeah, okay, so that's like downright silly then. Right. Um, yeah, as Will said, this is a film about, you know, what happens when General Motors makes massive plant closures in, uh, in Flint. And I think really the backdrop of this film is that, uh, I mean, I think it tells a story that it's personal and it's about this one town, but it really tells a story that, you know, is not just relevant to an American context, but certainly like uh, where I grew up in rural southwestern Ontario, you know, there are a lot of places like Flint, towns of a similar size, cities that are a little bigger, that were sustained for, you know, at least one generation, if not more, by uh, different kinds of manufacturing industries, whether that's... um, you know, steel in uh, in Hamilton or uh, in Stratford, where I went to high school for two years before the festival, you know, came in. Stratford's a bit of an exception because of the mm-hmm. festival. There was, you know, furniture, rail repair, ball bearings, these kind of things. Did you know Justin Bieber? <laughs> well, I mean, he would have been like five years old or something when I was there. Well, so he was no. a prodigy, though. He was from a young age uh, playing his guitar in, ta- in the town square. So I heard. Well, uh, I mean, uh, I didn't see it. So... <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, so before the festival and Justin Bieber, this is how Stratford kind of made its name. And um, if you go through Ontario, you know, most of the towns did have these kinds of industries, and they're mostly gone now, Um, and particularly a lot of the big manufacturing ones. Woodstock, where I grew up near, actually ended up getting an auto plant, so it was a bit of an exception. But, I mean, in the United States and in in a lot of these kind of um, Midwestern states, there was a really big shift beginning in the 1970s, I guess, away from... Uh, this kind of manufacturing-based economy. And the result uh, for a lot of these communities was really devastating. And what we see in this film 
is kind of what that you know looks like you know in practice. We should maybe get into a little bit of Michael Moore's background. I, most of what I know about Michael Moore's background comes from this movie, Roger and Me, the revisionist <laughs> history of his life that opens it. I assume that he just sprang from his mother's womb wearing a ball cap. Right, he and, just appears like jeans. he's already this like like this earnest blue collar guy like in the stock, old stock footage or whatever. Right, so he grew up in allegedly Flint. A journalist in the Flint, Michigan area, kind of a, a rabble-rousing populist lefty type. And he started a paper that I think was called the Michigan Voice, or was involved in it anyway, right? And that was successful enough to land him a job as editor of what he calls a magazine in California. Right, he, ne- he never tells us what the name is, But does he? The, the magazine is Mother Jones. A little magazine you might have heard of. Which I yeah. feel like undercuts his claim yeah, of being a blue-collar naive a little bit. But right. right. So we, we get this scene early on when in San Francisco when he talks a little bit about, but you know, coming to San Francisco from Michigan, I was surprised. <laughs> there are all these restaurants where you just couldn't even get a decent cup of coffee. And then it cuts to uh, a barista being like, we have caramel macchiato, uh, latte, whatever. I mean, Michael Moore's uh, sense of humor has always veered, I think, a little bit towards the hacky. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so let's just, before we get into what we like about this film, which I think is a lot, mm-hmm. let's just get this out of the way. This film, in spite of not suffering from a lot of the gimmickry that kind of spoils later Michael Moore films, like, I agree with what you're saying mm-hmm. that it, you know, I mean, that scene in particular where, yeah, it's like, I'm simple folk and, and like, all the places, all the restaurants in San Francisco look like they're dessert places right. and, like, it's the middle of the day and nobody's at work. It's they're very, just in a uh, cafe or whatever. It's, it's like, very Tim Allen. Yeah. It's but a but bit anyway, like, he goes yeah. on to say that at the magazine that is Mother Jones. Mm. His explanation for why he was fired was that they wanted him to do an investigation about herbal teas and he wanted to put an unemployed auto worker on the cover and he did. So they fired him and they thought he wasn't a good and fit. And they paid for his U-Haul back to back to Flint. I'm not quite sure how to decipher that. I guess what he's trying to get across is that he was interested in sort of labor union class yeah. stuff and they wanted they wanted bougie sort of culturalist politics or whatever like but and so mm-hmm. according to his telling of the story he arrived home in Flint just in time for Roger Smith to announce layoffs and eventually the closure. Mm-hmm. So in some of the early scenes, we see he persuades them to let him film at the GM plant, posing as a reporter from Toledo, mm-hmm. which I, I kind of like. Uh, <laughs> and there's a scene where everybody's cheering the last car being put through the assembly line. And there's this one auto worker who says, I don't know why they're cheering. They all just lost their jobs. Yeah. And then and then uh, then there's a really good shot of uh, where he's just got a fixed camera and workers are coming out of the factory and he must be holding up a sign or something that says like, it must say something like send a message to Roger Smith because they're all just going, it's too rude, I can't say it, or you know, well, fuck Roger Smith yeah. or or whatever. So there's all these uh, there's all these people who are you know I think one guy says you know times are going to be tough or something. You know there's a there's a kind of a, I don't know there's a kind of spiritedness I think like in how kind of depressed it is, which is pretty striking. And another thing you see at the beginning of the film, which I think is really powerful, is you see all this stock footage of old Flint. Mm-hmm. So there's this parade where it's got all the local politicians and it's got the trade unionists and the auto workers. And it's this big parade with all this pomp. And the town like looks amazing. Like it looks like it's a wonderful life or mm-hmm. something. You know, it looks like this kind of peak Americana 
1950s middle class And then town. as the movie goes on, it's kind of becomes this fantasia of the, the town in denial, basically, trying to delude itself into thinking that it's not in decline, mm-hmm. when in fact it is. And you see all these celebrities mm-hmm. come in, basically, mm-hmm. to tell them, oh, you just gotta pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and, uh, you know, Roger Smith feels guilty about this, too, but there's right. still lots of opportunity. Right, and I think that's really powerful. I mean, yeah, so throughout the film, there's, like, a number of these kind of... There, there are layers of demagogy that we kind of see, like, mm-hmm. as the film progresses. So, one of the one of the earliest scenes we see, and I think this interview is referred back to throughout the film, I think right up until the end, is there's this business uh, spokesperson who's it's like, I know Roger Smith, he's a good guy, and, you know, it's he's just doing what needs to be done to, like, save the jobs in the long run and stuff. This is a PR guy from General Motors. From General Motors, And he at one yeah. point says uh, GM is doing whatever it has to do to remain competitive. That's right. Even though GM is the number one company in the world at this time. Yeah, so General Motors, yeah, I mean, so the context of this is it's making billions in profits, this company, and it's outsourcing these people's jobs to Mexico where labor is cheaper, which was which is kind of the classic... That's how globalization uh, ruins things. So, you know, we see the town kind of get more and more dilapidated in these various stages. We see, like, the public infrastructure crumble. At one point, we learn that there are more... There have been public health cuts, so there's more rats in the town than there are humans now. So the public infrastructure declines. There, There's people's homes getting foreclosed on. People are doing more and more depressing things to make ends meet so we meet the lady who sells rabbits as pets if you want but more to eat and um she's on social security she says she makes 10 to 15 dollars a week from this business but it's better than uh it's better than making nothing at all and meanwhile in moore's telling of this story which has been somewhat disputed the timeline (laughs) uh he shows a number of ways that the city tries to reinvent itself Mm -hmm. so there's this half-hearted attempt to rebrand it as a tourist destination with a new hotel, mm-hmm. where which has the only working escalator and, and in the, the city. And that guy's amazing, the uh, the local tourism guy who's got those uh, <laughs> he's got those kind of eyes that are just full of this like naive hope, and he's talking about how great Flint is going to be. And they open this they open this hotel that has the only working escalator in the city, and the regular people from the town are allowed <laughs> in on the first day. To try this, the only escalator that works. This is, I think, one of the reasons why this movie is better than most other Michael Moore movies is it's the one that feels most like kind of a traditional documentary than an op-ed that's Mm. been assembled out of news footage and Mm. his own narration. So there are a lot of scenes where he just observes. It's the least maudlin and it's the least didactic of his documentaries Mm -hmm. and the least um, sanctimonious. Mm I mean, he's a master in this movie of just finding beautiful little metaphors that Mm -hmm. sum up the situation. Mm -hmm. So there's the scene, there's a wealthy garden party that's Great Gatsby-themed, where the wealthy people have hired unemployed auto workers to pose as human statues. And while they're posing as human statues, the wealthy people are just saying, well, I think think it's a great place to live. There's lots of opportunities. You just gotta, you know, it's sad that people are out of work, but, you know, gotta get up every day and it's a new day. And And there's another scene where there are some old ladies on the golf course where they say, there's lots of great things here. There's the opera, the ballet. I really don't know the answer. I feel sorry for people. But you can't help them. I mean, you have such a good welfare program, and so they just don't want to work. I don't think so. I really don't know. I absolutely don't know. Good chat. That's nice. 
But, or, or then there are other scenes like the prison population has got so out of control that they've had to build a new prison. And a lot of the new, a lot of the prison guards are ex-auto workers, right? Uh, who are locking up their old, their old co-workers, colleagues, yeah. And to celebrate the opening of the prison, they're letting Flint society stay over for the night, you know, to kind of slum it. So, so people, so it's like these um, middle-aged couples that are sort of like upper middle class, and they and they're dressed like as felons, and they get to ride. They get booked mm-hmm. uh, on the way there after a pub crawl. And they get driven there in a limo, and then they get uh, like fake fingerprinted, and um, and like a fake. They get, I think they get a fake mug shot, which is like a souvenir. And then they get to spend the night in a cell and like sort of walk around the prison and like play with riot gear and things like that. It reminds me of those stupid charity things that people do now, where like rich people can pretend to be homeless for a night to right. raise money for the homeless, <laughs> and they get out there in their Armani tracksuits yeah, with their yeah. with their sleeping bags yeah, yeah, in some yeah. parking garage overnight dur- during, like, July or something, <laughs> and and they can give the illusion that they've roughed it. Yeah, and that's how, uh, and, you know, that's how we solve, uh, that's how we solve uh, homelessness <laughs> and poverty. Um, like, yeah, I think, you know, these scenes are amazing because they really show that they just show kind of the utter like debasement of late capitalism, like the moral and ethical debasement of it that you have like this whole town. That's the, the main industry is hollowed out and all these crazy things people are doing to um, survive. So like another, another layer of it is the, uh, you know, the, the religious demagogy that happens. Right. Like, so Billy Graham shows up and he, he's Billy Graham is one of the celebrities who shows up. Anita Bryant, Pat, Pat Boone, Boone. Yeah. A lot of kind of, you know, <laughs> people you would associate with the Reagan years. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I read something interesting. Margaret Thatcher, she says, cheer up America. She says, you live in a great country. You're a free country. You have a great president and not everything is perfect. But cheer up, because because you live in a free America. So we live in a free society. Today is a new day. It's an opportunity to do something with yourself. Um, um, if nothing else, you know, thank God for the for the sunshine and and for the for the fact that you're not starving to death. And go out and do something with your hands. Um, I don't know. We hear a, a little bit of Billy Graham's speech where he's talking about. Again, it's the pull pull yourself up by your own bootstraps bullshit. But it's it's like religious, so it's like this perfect Reaganite mm-hmm. demagogy where it's like or Reagan era demagogy where it's like evangelical Christianity plus this sort of like neoliberal bootstrap line. It's literally like right. theology being used in the service of like mm-hmm. capitalism. The re- the re- God yeah. thinks that the reason you can't get a job is, is you're lazy. And just look at just look at Job, right? You know, he was able to pull himself up by his bootstraps, so why can't you? Yeah, like I think at one point he says something like, you know, look inward at yourself and you'll like learn more about other people or something. So I think Billy Graham is maybe the most sinister of a long line of sinister people in this movie. Mm. Others there are other people who are in the movie who are just sort of clueless. Well, who are so, just sort of clueless stooges for mm. for this system. So like Miss America, for instance. Right. So let's talk about that scene because... Um, and there's so many amazing... Like, I do think some of these scenes deserve to be talked about individually. But this has got to be one of the most controversial scenes, if not the most controversial scene in the movie. Well, it's a, it's a scene that makes me cringe. Uh, it's when he's... It's, I cringed watching it It's at night. the... Yeah. It's at, and I'm not really sure how to feel about it. It's at the parade when... And, and the parade is, like, is so depressing. They have a couple of survivors of the Great Flint sit-down strike, strike, yeah. Which is kind of again, Michael Moore is great at finding these little these little metaphoric moments, and this is a great metaphor for how you know the struggles of the past can be 
rebranded right. and marketed and, right. and and put put on a pedestal yeah. for all to admire. But yeah. we're, we're not actually going to recreate it, right? right. <laughs> well, and he even talks to the local, or he talks to, I can't remember if it's the, the head of the union local, I think it might even be a more senior official, who's like literally poo-pooing the idea of any kind of strikes. And he's mm-hmm. like, so at this point, like, the union movement itself is so battered that it's um, that it's actually kind of collaborating with these job losses because it's mm-hmm. it, it doesn't feel like it has the energy or the dynamism to resist any of this stuff. So yeah, you hear from this kind of high-ranking union bureaucrat, and then actually a minute later, really effectively, you hear from some rank and file guy who's just like you know the union's weak and they're they're caving to you know they're too close to management and uh, mm-hmm. and yeah. So anyway, so Moore basically shouts some stuff at Miss America. Um, or she's Miss Michigan. Miss Michigan. I just, sorry, I just gave away. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and she doesn't answer him during the parade, but then he manages to uh, catch up with her when uh, she's getting on the bus. And, and what happens, Will? Well, he basically just asks her a couple of questions about what she, how does she feel about the situation in Flint. And she kind of equivocates. He says, oh, I don't really know. You know, mm-hmm. wish me well at Miss America this yeah. weekend. Just being here for the people. This is, is, is it the parade? I... But you go past so many stores that are boarded up and people that are laid off. Well, how does that make you feel just on a personal level? A little sad. Of course, I'm, I'm for um, employment and working in Michigan. And hope, hopefully it's just temporarily. So I just keep my fingers crossed that, that they'll be back in working soon. I'm trying to stay neutral here. I'm going to Miss America in two weeks, and I don't want to... <laughs> it's, a, it's a great day for a parade, isn't it? Oh, it's beautiful. Turn out. I'm, I'm not sure how to feel that about that, because on the one hand, it's kind of like picking on this weak target, this yeah. poor girl who has no idea. But then again, I mean, she is like... She, she, she is, is a stooge for in this. The, in, the, in the context of like this parade, she is sort of... She's this like human bit of like um, nationalist icon- iconography that's been imported by these like you know, by, by the people who are overseeing the decline of this town and, and are telling people to just, you know, suck it up and deal with it. And she's kind of a figurehead for that. But I think what's so cringeworthy about that scene is that it's like she herself is not responsible for what's going on. You know, she's just like, she's just like a young woman who's, who just happens to be there. And it's, it's, it's uncomfortable watching uh, him interrogate her. Well, I mean, she's the least slick of the celebrities we yeah. see in the movie. I mean, Pat Boone isn't responsible either. Right. But, but he's able to... He's much more of an old pro with right. this sort of thing, so you can hate him more. Right. And those people, like, I think... She's not even saying anything, right? She's just on the mm-hmm. parade... You know, she's just on the parade, and, and, like, she's not there to function as, like, a demagogue in the way that, like, these other people are. Right. Billy Graham is coming with an agenda. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, these are people that are espousing the values that kind of undergirded this whole kind of process of, like, deindustrialization and everything already. So I think it's a lot easier to hate them than it is to hate uh, Miss Michigan, or as, you know, I revealed, uh, she, of course, became Miss America a couple weeks later. Oh. And what do you think of the hunt for Roger? I don't think we brought this up, probably because it's the least interesting part of the movie, but famously, mm. the movie is structured around... Michael Moore trying to get an interview with Roger Smith, right. the president of GM, and failing. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I you know, I wanted to say this earlier, sort of get it out of the way. Like, I think that the gimmickry in this film, we talked about the San Francisco bit, but then there's the Roger bit, which is kind of the wireframe for the movie. To me, this is what, the, this is the only kind of weakness in the film, and it's where Moore's penchant for kind of gimmickry gets the better of him. Because it's unclear to me what, you know, there's... 
just these like there's multiple scenes where Moore kind of is showing up. You know, he shows up at some office or some country club where you know where he thinks Roger uh, Roger Smith is going to be, and it's um you know and he he kind of tries to elbow his way through the whoever the local you know official is or the PR person or the snooty guy at the country club who's just sort of like mm, you 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 have to leave sir you know or whatever. One of the movie's big detractors at the time was Pauline Kael from The New Yorker. Oh, right. Interesting. And she wrote in her review, this is from her capsule review. She wrote a longer review, but she wrote, He comes on in a give him hell style, but he breaks faith with the audience, and he does something that is humanly very offensive. Roger and me uses its leftism as a superior attitude. Members of the audience can laugh at ordinary working people and still feel that they're taking a politically correct position. Okay, so... I sort of agree with half of that, but I think that he's not, I mean, taking the piss out of ordinary working people. He's taking the piss out of these kind of suits at, like, General Motors HQ or the people who are, who are like, the reception at the country club. Like, I don't, I can't think of a scene offhand where he's actually making fun of... Yeah, but I mean, like the, people, the, people. The, the, the security people at GM headquarters. Yeah, no, I... I, I mean, Michael I Moore, so. I've heard Michael Moore I, in interviews describe them as the good Germans... Yeah, that's that's maybe pushing his luck a little bit, but and I think like that speaks to me to what's ineffective about this whole Roger quest because he knows that he's not going to get an interview, um, and it's it's just he knows going in exactly what's going to happen, and even like when you see him on camera and when when you hear him talking in those scenes, it really sounds like he's playing a, a Michael Moore character uh, because he, because the result of these interactions is a foregone conclusion. Right, and I mean, we know that. He yeah. knows that. The, it's a, it's just an elaborate piece mm-hmm. of performance art. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the statement that it's making, which is that Roger Smith is in his office above the little people like us and Michael Moore, mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty obvious statement that's better expressed elsewhere in mm-hmm. the movie and more subtly expressed elsewhere. Then again, I feel like without this plot and without Moore announcing himself as this kind of prankster performance artist we might not even know who michael moore is now i mean Mm -hmm. it was this plot that got the movie sold basically and they got this is the plot that people talked about before they talked about flint michigan Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i guess it has a certain rhetorical power but watching this film again it's the least interesting thing about it for me yes um like all of this all of these interesting characters that he meets these kind of public events that he films they're uh they're a lot more interesting they are interesting and, I, and we don't get good characters in the later michael moore movies no like he he humanizes you know he really humanizes people you know famously there's this character whose job it is he's the sheriff's deputy and his job mm-hmm. is to evict people and i mean the scenes you know more follows him around and the scenes where he's evicting people are really ugly and you see kind of people at last minute, you know, they're 10 days over the, you know, having not having paid rent or whatever, can't can't settle things with their landlord. So there's a guy at the door who's, you know, breaking the lock and telling them they have to go. And it's really, uh, it's really traumatic. And in some cases, you know, you're actually able to kind of witness what's sort of an intimate event, which is him actually going into the house and sort of saying, sheriff's deputy, you, you know, you're evicted or whatever. And you can see them like, emptying out the kid's room or in one case he evicts a guy more went to high school with who right. just is standing on the porch in desperation whose name is james bond right which is uh, a funny detail yeah. uh 
the weird thing about Fred, the sheriff's deputy, is that he doesn't actually come across as a villain in the Not movie. He actually no. he has a certain quiet dignity to Absolutely. him. I think it's just because he's authentic in a way that Pat Boone and those yeah. other people aren't. Yeah. And there are some other interesting characters, too, like uh, the color consultant is one that I had totally forgot about that scene. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, so there's this woman who, her, at the time, her husband was still employed uh, in the auto industry, but, you know, she's trying to make some extra cash. And, I mean, and, you know, you see their home and they're obviously not well off. So she takes a course in something called color consulting, which basically sounds like a sort of vaguely new agey. Um, it's like new age spirituality plus sort of fashion. You see this scene where she's she's explaining what season of color she is. Mm-hmm. And she's explaining that they're hot and cold colors based on people's seasons and, and stuff and then a few months later she calls michael moore back and said there's been a terrible mistake she's really upset i'm actually an yeah. autumn not a summer yeah uh and she explains using the like really complicated you know cosmology of this fake color consulting thing that you know i mean i'm in the same family of colors and whatever but i but i'm not but i'm not a you know i'm not an autumn or or whatever it is and, um, but she's somebody who is sort of presenting herself as somebody who's been able to an entrepreneur an entrepreneur yeah. who's been able to rise from the ashes yeah. of this terrible crisis in flint and the gm spokesperson we see talks about well there's this other person in flint who has a very successful lint rolling business lint yeah. rolling business yeah. and michael moore Kind of one of the few times he really intrudes in yeah. one of these interviews says, "Wait a minute, you're telling me lint rollers That's are the, the answer?" To, to, we're not making cars anymore. Again. But I mean, that is uh, there are certain people. Let's call them the Republicans, <laughs> who who really kind of wrap themselves up in the flag of entrepreneurialism and America's full of small businesses. I think I think Democrats too now with all yeah, the Silicon I guess so. Valley stuff, and it's kind of the same. Uh, it's the same ethos for another time, um, and it's sort of like. You know, just another opiate to keep people mm. distracted from yeah. unions being crushed yeah. and factories <laughs> being outsourced. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so a- another one of the really powerful metaphors in the film, we talked about the hotel uh, that, that uh, eventually fails. Because nobody wants to visit Flint. Because nobody wants to visit Flint. But the even worse one is, uh, is Auto World, <laughs> which is a, a monument to the great thriving middle class city that was which features a kind of a panorama display with an auto worker who kind of who's like a puppet and he's he's singing uh, about there's an auto the has- machine the machine is his buddy or whatever the machine that's replacing him is his buddy um what were yeah you it's very chuck e cheese style yeah it looks ridiculous um it looks like um it looks like one of those puppets from like the thunderbirds or mm-hmm. um and then that this auto world also has a full like a life-size recreation of old downtown flint when it was so you can visit in this town that's been completely hollowed out economically you can visit within the town this fake recreation of of what the town used to look like and as michael moore said it'd be like building exxon world in alaska (laughs) Uh, yeah this leads to maybe the other controversial sticking point in the movie is the alleged oh god it feels like we're going over such cliche shit with this movie but (laughs) the the michael moore fumbling up the timeline right and uh right allegedly Auto World started being built before the plant closed. Mm-hmm. There's another famous instance of Ronald Reagan comes to visit to uh, take some unemployed auto workers out for pizza and tell them how they can get back on their feet. On the way out, one of the auto workers steals the cash register. As it turns out, that actually happened in 1980, about right. five or six years before any of this happened. Right. And the cash register was stolen two days later. Right. I feel like all of the headaches that Michael Morris had from 
hearing about what a liar he is mm-hmm. could have been easily avoided by him just just saying in the film just saying oh in 1980 ronald reagan came and yeah absolutely but i mean i th- i still think um a lot of these things are are uh, are extremely powerful you know and yeah this reconstructed old flint is uh is just amazing like in a town where you know half the people are on some form of social assistance you know where the public infrastructure is crumbling but hey you can visit like what the town used to look like when <laughs> when it was thriving have i ever told you that i've actually been to flint michigan yeah i think you mentioned that and it was like it was inspired by this movie right well i i'm not really proud of this because it's a terrible <laughs> thing to do like disaster tourism yeah. but uh shame on you will it's problematic i was in high school and my family and i were going on a family vacation to detroit which is already hilarious but you know detroit has the henry ford museum and other stuff i think we'd been to all the other border cities <laughs> So. You, you'd, you'd done Buffalo. Yeah. You'd, you'd even crossed into Utica. <laughs> so I, on the way back, I was I said, oh, is Flint on the way back? I, let, let's check it out. And it turns out Flint was, I think, just maybe a 20-minute detour on the way back. And, uh, I mean, it is, as advertised, it is really terrible. Everything, every house within five miles of the downtown is boarded up. Really, the only things that are open are sort of like, couple of donut shops yeah it's it's a terrible terrible place yeah and i mean um in the film we see i think it's forbes magazine declares flint the worst city to live in in north america and this is back when stuff was actually open in flint yeah and uh the town has kind of a like an indignant uh burning of this like a public burning of this forbes magazine this gets back into what I guess Michael Moore is trying to convey the denial that mm-hmm. the town is in over mm-hmm. over the decline. Mm-hmm. Michael Moore is also trying to imply that not enough there's not enough indignation in the town that GM is closing. Mm-hmm. He shows us one protest about the closing of the plant, which mm-hmm. only had four people. Yeah, at it's it. small. Yeah, and I mean people have people have complained to Michael Moore about that because of course there were other protests that had more people at them that he didn't film. Mm-hmm. But basically, he shows a community that's sort of complacent and doesn't stand up for itself yeah i mean i think i think it's the it's the officialdom in the community that doesn't mm-hmm. stand up for itself i mean i think everybody else is too is too demoralized and mm-hmm. and and desperate too so there's a scene in this film where you get you see a live rabbit get murdered <laughs> on camera yeah um, pauline kale said that that's the moment when the movie becomes like an errol morris documentary where it just sort of uh just sort of stares blankly at these strange lives, you know? Yeah, I mean, that that lady with the rabbits is quite eccentric. Uh, like, the way she's kind of stroking the rabbit and it's trying to get away, and she just talks in this totally, like, cold voice about how she's going to, like, brutally kill this thing later. You know, it's these moments and these characters that make me feel... that are a little bittersweet for me with, with this movie, because we never get... Again, as I said, we never get characters like this in any of Michael Moore's other movies. Yeah. The people who are in Michael Moore's other movies are basically props. They're like devices. It's like, oh, here are two victims of Columbine, and we'll take them to Kmart for an elaborate piece of performance art. Right. Anyway, you're attending a lot of films. Oh, everything. Um, well, not I mean everything, but Ninja or uh, uh, Neil Simon. Those are like the, <laughs> the, the two genres. I, I just couldn't sit through I those. I can't handle uh-huh. those. <laughs> but uh, everything, but <laughs> everything go, in between. Everything else I would go to, and then I thought, well, maybe I should just make a movie. Really? Know? Yeah. Yeah. And what, yeah. What, now, when you, a, a lot of people may have thought that, you know, maybe yeah. I could be an actor or a singer or a dancer, whatever. You said maybe I should make a film. Well, fine, but then what do you do? Uh, get a camera and just start shooting. 
That's it. I know, but you make it sound so simple. Where did you get the camera, and where did you get the film, and uh, how did you know what to do? And well, uh, we well, I can't really say where we got some of it, but uh -huh. you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it seemed to work out. Anyways, yeah, we're, and three years later, I get Warner Brothers is distributing my movie uh, all across the country. Now, see, this is just amazing to me. This is really another version of the American dream. Uh, well, yeah, except this one's a reality. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the legacy of this film. It played at the New York Film Festival, Toronto. It became one of the first documentaries, maybe the first documentary to get picked up by a major studio, Warner Brothers, and to play in hundreds of theaters. It became the most successful documentary of all time at that time. But, I mean, it had no effect, sadly, on Flint. It didn't <laughs> arrest the process of uh, deindustrialization. Say it ain't so. No. I, you know, we, we slag on Michael Moore at times, but, I mean, he has been on the right side of every issue. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, I don't want to say every issue, but... Uh, I say every issue, <laughs> especially voting for Ralph Nader that time. <laughs> so, all in all, I would say we liked this film a lot more than Slacker Uprising. And, spoiler, more than we're going to like any other movie we talk about. I would say so. Um, and what's what's the next film? Is it the big one? No, um, Canadian Bacon. Canadian Bacon. Oh, wow, I loved that film as a kid. I can't wait to, uh, I can't wait to watch that again. So one of the things I like about this movie, and one of the things that m makes it really relevant for me, is that since this whole process of decline happened, I mean, so this movie came out when we were just like little kids. Um, it came out the year we were born. The year we were born, um, so 89 for mm -hmm. me, uh, and you as well, yes. I guess. Um, you know, since then, the process that the film is depicting basically continued apace. You know, jobs kept, uh, these kinds of jobs kept being outsourced. There was a transition increasingly to a service-based economy. We see that in the film in a really depressing uh, moment where auto workers who worked on assembly lines, you know, people who were actually highly skilled manual laborers are assembling tacos at Taco Bell. Mm -hmm. That whole process continued. And, um, you know, I think it's safe to say that in the past year and the past few years, and post the recession of 2008-2009, uh, something's kind of snapped. Like this, even the people who kind of defended these processes, who were were pro-globalization, they're having a harder and harder time defending this, and they're having a harder and harder time. I think both parties um, are having a harder time managing their, or the elites of both parties in the states are having a harder and harder time managing uh, managing their bases, managing the people who've been, uh, who've been shafted by this, uh... Shaft! <laughs> thanks for that. Um, great contribution. <laughs> um, uh, uh, like yeah, I so, say, I'm the guy so in the my, barber shop. So my job on the show is to, is to go into these kind of, uh, <laughs> like, overly cerebral kind of, like, rants about, about pol contemporary politics, and Will's job is to, like, sort of disrupt them with these little, these little quips. Well, speaking of bits disruption... Of irony. Speaking of disruption, I think that's where our economy is going in a really positive way, Luke. We're, we're in a disruptive, I like to call it the sharing economy. And I think these these ingrates in Flint would, uh, would you know, be well advised to learn from the sharing economy. They all, they all need, if every, if every unemployed auto worker in Flint just developed an app, I mean... If all the unemployed auto workers in Flint, like if we'd had Uber back then and all of them started being Uber drivers, like think of... Think of the prosperity that would be in Flint today. <laughs> uh, that's a fact. 
So throughout this, um, I'm going to get serious again for a second. Hope that's okay with I you. I was dead um, serious. Oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> my mistake. Um, so, um, you know, throughout this election cycle, there's been uh, both kind of um, on the left and on the right, or on the ostensible left and on the right, there have been a number of, of uh, kind of hot takes about, you know, either the Democratic or the Republican base or, or segments of it, and basically oozing with contempt, particularly for... People in these communities like Flint, these kind of, de, you know, deindustrialized communities. So there have been takes in the liberal press and also on the right publications like the National Review that have really showed a lot of contempt for people in these uh, deindustrialized communities. So um, not David French, I'm forgetting the name. David French def- defended the, the, the name of the guy yeah. who wrote this thing in the National Review. I can't it. remember his name These either. These communities, he wrote, you know, deserve to die uh, they're, they're cesspools of, you know, lax morals. I mean, really like Victorian style language against the poor about how, you know, debased they are. And His it, diagnosis with, was that they should move away from Arkansas or, mm, or whatever yeah. to California or yeah. something, which is a very, they should it's be, pretty practical. They I think. should be picked up and moved into these tent cities around kind of metropolitan areas in the United States. Very much like he mm. wants the grapes of wrath, mm. I think. Yeah. And there's been a similar thing to, but I mean, to a lesser degree from, you know, some writers at outlets like Salon um, around people voting for Bernie Sanders, especially in, you know, Midwestern states in places like uh, West Virginia, Michigan, people who, you know, are not necessarily culturally very similar to cosmopolitan liberals in New York or San Francisco who might vote for the Democratic Party. But it's really amusing that, you know, the the charge that some of these liberals have against Sanders is that he's getting people who might otherwise vote Republican to vote for a Democrat. Uh, I think that's amusing. Hmm. Anyway, I think there's been a lot of antipathy towards these groups of people. Um, It used to be, you know, in this film, we see a lot of demagogy against them, Hmm. which is kind of morphing and has morphed since into this full-blown kind of class hatred. Which well, a lot is really... of the hatred on the left comes from the idea that, oh, these stupid poor people are voting against their own interests. Right. And, you know, like, we're not even going to bother... I mean, one of the reasons the Democratic Party has shifted so far away from union issues and mm-hmm. workers' issues is because they perceive those people as just voting Republican anyway, so... Right. And, I mean, Let's that's... focus on cultural issues. Right. And, I mean, that's... Um, it's also because the Democratic Party, I think, has made a, a conscious decision to transform itself into a party which is kind of Wall Street plus Silicon Valley plus sort of middle-class uh, professionals. I mean, this kind of contempt that they have, well, these... Um, the white working class is just going to back reactionaries anyway... You know what I what I what I like about that is that there's a there's a parallel on the Democratic side. Um, there's people who are traditional Democratic Party voters who do want redistributive politics. They like social democracy. There's a lot of polling that shows that there's a substantial base for like a majority of Americans want single payer health care, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This you know demagogy against the red state voter who's so dumb they won't you know they're always voting for gop politicians something similar has gone on in the democratic party i think in the last 25 years where people who espouse progressive values are corralled again and again and again and again into supporting you know bill clinton or last week you know we talked about john Kerry or or uh maybe hillary clinton 
I'm with her. Uh, you know, I think what you're failing to understand is your ideas are not plausible. They failed everywhere they've been implemented. I mean, if you want to, like, if you want to know how good single payer healthcare is, ask a Canadian. All right, it's a disaster up there. Yeah, I uh, I had a cough recently, and I had to go and wait 15 minutes to get to to see a doctor. It was it was brutal. It, I mean, it was practically like the Soviet Union in the 1950s. Anyway, if you want to know what else happened to Michael Moore, I see, well, again, today is the day of the California primary. He was out on Twitter voicing his support for for Bernie. And when I searched his name on Twitter to see if anyone was talking about us, of course they weren't, but they, <laughs> but they were talking about uh, how Michael Moore is not a true progressive. <laughs> so is just, that a thing? Yeah, I have seen that. It's I, not. He's not a true progressive. I, I, I wouldn't say it's a thing, but it's something I've seen today. So you mean it's? So it's? They were saying he's not a true progressive because he supports Bernie. That's right. That's. I mean, that's hilarious. So uh, anyway, it's just something to think about. Like we, we want to give you some hot takes. You know what I love about our podcast is. You know, it's a popular trend these days to explore politics through garbage culture, whether it's, uh, you know, some Arthur Chu article about how... The, the intersectional politics of the latest Marvel piece yeah, of crap. Or, or how Star Wars perfectly explains the election or some, some dumb shit. We're exploring, we're exploring politics through garbage culture that nobody cares about. <laughs> So <laughs> I thought you were going to say we're exploring politics through high art, a.k.a. Michael Moore. I would never say that. But again, I got to tell you, I really liked Roger and me watching it again. Uh, I kind of resented last night that I was going to have to watch it again. Same. Because yeah. I was kind of like, oh, fuck. I didn't, I didn't start watching until quite late. Yeah, me too. I put it off uh, because I was too busy being on Twitter and being mad about the Associated Press. Mm. But then I really enjoyed it. I mean, I don't get... This is your problem, Luke. You take this shit so seriously. You're so emotionally... It's not like there's anything at stake, is there? You're so emotionally invested. Guys like me, we know we're all... We know we're all fucked. <laughs> Sorry, I'm becoming George Carlin. <laughs> Anyway, we might as well sign off uh, for the week. Uh, again, next week, Canadian Bacon. Which is a fiction film. His which, only fiction film. Really, The Road Not Traveled. Right, which I loved as a kid, which has uh, John Candy in um, the, his last role. I Alan believe. Alda, Rhea mm-hmm. Perlman, Kevin Pollack. Great cast. Yeah, and uh, which is set partly in Toronto, which is, of course, where we're recording this podcast. Um, and I always love a little bit of Canadiana. Oh, yeah, and it has a cameo by Kingston Man About Town, Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> So, signing off, my name was Will Sloan. And my name was Luke Savage. See you next time. Thanks for listening. You know it seems the more we talk about it, it only makes it worse to live.